Well, I've had the opportunity to be here in Michigan for the last couple of weeks. Um, a group of guys that I grew up with in Fremont, Michigan, have continued a tradition there of an annual men's snowmobile retreat in the Upper Peninsula. So they asked me to come and be the chaplain and speak to the guys. So I got to speak to a lot of guys that I grew up with. And uh, that was just a real blessing. We got the weather report one day, and they said, we've got good news and bad news. The good news is the wind chill and the temperature are the same. The bad news is the temperature is minus 15. So um, I have this app on my phone that tells me our weather report for Phoenix, Arizona. So today, here's the next three days, 72, 71, 72. Chance of uh, precipitation, zero, zero, zero. Sunshine, 100%, 100%, 100%. Well, it's my privilege to be back here in Fremont and and also to be down here with you guys in Linden. And um, it's nice to come back to some of my roots. But I get to fly out tonight and go home and thaw out. So we're looking forward to that. I want to start with uh, retelling a story. For those of you that were with us yesterday, we saw a video. And I want to summarize that for the rest of us today as we start. I want to tell you about my friend Larry. Larry came to me and he was struggling with, with great, great struggles. He had major panic attacks where he'd be driving down the street and he would just, just be hit with this thought that life is meaningless. There's nothing to life. Christianity is a crutch. There is no God. When we die, we just go to dust, and he would just have these panic attacks. He said, what do I do? I said, well, maybe you should just start coming in and having the elders pray for you. So he came in, showed what's going on, and we, we prayed for him. And as he's walking out the door, one of the elders said, hey, Larry, tell me about your relationship with your dad. He slammed his fist on the desk and said, I hate my dad. He's dead, and I hope he's burning in hell. And so I grabbed him and said, well, Larry, maybe we're not quite done with our discussion yet. Maybe there's a few things we need to talk about. So here's Larry's story. His, his father um, was killed, murdered, when Larry was um, three years old. Uh, family of five, he was the youngest. And, um, but his father died a hero in Larry's eyes because um, he was killed by the next-door neighbor when he got in the middle of a domestic abuse situation between a husband and a wife. And the husband killed him and his wife. So Larry grew up without a dad, without you know, all the things that you have as a dad. He loved baseball. He loved Little League. And when he would be up to bat in Little League, he did what all Little League guys do. You get up there, right? You first hit the... Dirt off your cleats, right? Like you see all of the pros do, and, and you get ready. What's the last thing every little league guy does? He looks up in the bleachers. Who's he looking for? Is dad watching right now? Larry would look, no dad. But you know what? It's okay because dad died a hero. He was a hero in the war. He died a hero. So whenever Larry would have this sense of loss of not having a dad, he would just remind himself, dad died as a hero. When he's about 19 is when the panic attacks started. And so we explored that some more. I said, Larry, what's going on in your life at age 19? He was at a family gathering, and his uncles made some comments about Larry's dad that didn't make sense. So Larry pulled him aside and said, I didn't understand that. 
His uncle said, well, Larry, I think it's about time you're old enough to know what really happened with your dad. Your dad was having an affair with the next door neighbor, and her husband came home unexpectedly in the middle of the afternoon, caught them in bed together, and shot and killed them both. Dad didn't die a hero. He died an adulterer. And the pain, the bitterness, and all the loss that he thought had meaning and purpose now just turned into bitterness in Larry's life. And that bitterness was ruling him. There's two things that will eat you from the inside out. One is guilt and one is bitterness. We had Larry work through forgiving his dead dad. And as he released his dad from his bitterness and his wrath that his dad deserved, guess what happened to the panic attacks? God took them away. Bitterness is a powerful, powerful thing. It, it can eat you alive. Forgiving others is a big deal to God. We spent our whole day yesterday talking about that. There's four places where forgiving others is directly connected to God forgiving us. And we're told in Ephesians and Colossians that we're to forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven us. So I want to start again by laying a foundation of God's forgiveness. For those of you that were yesterday, there's going to be some review, some white spaces we're going to fill in. Um, but you probably forgot half of what we said yesterday anyway, so the review's going to be good. Okay? I want to start with our, our need of God's forgiveness. Listen to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and get this, and were by nature children of wrath even as a rest. That describes who we were. Children of wrath. That's not a very positive self-image. That's the reality of who we were. See, God's forgiveness is needed because of our sin. We're guilty before God. God holds the entire world as guilty before him and therefore deserving of his wrath. Guilt means the deserving of punishment of an obligation to render satisfaction to God's justice, all because of our sin. And God's going to deal with sin. He's a holy, righteous God. He must deal with sin. That's why Paul said in Romans 1.18, it says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, we don't like to hear, you know, I want to talk about God being love. I don't want to talk about God being wrath. But see, here's the, here's the reality, you guys. Until we understand the depth of our own sin, we will never understand the riches of God's grace. I don't understand how awesome God's grace is till I realize what a desperate sinner I was in desperate need of that grace. You see, if I only sin that much, how much grace do I need? That much. If I sin that much, how much grace do I need? That much. I'm dead 
in my trespasses and sin and helpless and hopeless to do anything about it. Desperate need of God's grace. The amazing thing is, there's no limit to God's grace. As much sin as there may be in my life, there's even more grace from God. I can never out-sin God's grace. We're guilty before him because of our sin. And because of that sin, that has separated us from God. Ephesians 2 says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. That's what we were. That's what some of you may be today sitting right here. You may be sitting here without hope and without God. But we want to see God provided what was necessary for you to be reconciled back to him. So we're separated from God. We're we're sinners. We're totally depraved. Man has absolutely no spiritual good in relationship to God. And we talked about this yesterday. How good is good enough? How good do you have to be when the standard is perfection? Romans 3 says there's no one righteous, not even one. David said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So we're we're just in this desperate state. But see, when we look at God's forgiveness, it's needed, but the work of Christ is adequate and sufficient to provide what we need. So in Ephesians 2, he said, we are by nature children of wrath. Verse 3. I love verse 4. Look what it says. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Now, I want to take a few minutes and talk about this. And I'm, you're going to have to bear with me because I want to talk about some theological terms that we may be familiar with but we need to be reminded of them today, okay? The first one of those terms is atonement. And that word atonement means the removal of sin. It means to cover up or to take care of. And there was always in this atonement this sense that somehow this sin was atoned by somebody else. This sin was covered up. Somebody else took the place to cover up this problem. Okay, so if, um, let's, let's say in Linden, they, they put a new civil law out, and the law is that everybody had to be perfect. Okay, that's the law. And if you failed to meet this law, the consequence was the death penalty. How many of you would be feeling really good about yourself right now? I don't know about you, but it wouldn't take long for the prosecuting attorney to build a really strong case against me. Number one, all they'd have to do is follow me around for a little bit, you know? Um, And they'd be able to have video of me. Just think if they could have a PowerPoint of what my thoughts were and present to the judge. 
I don't know about you, but I'd be in deep doo-doo. Okay? So here I'm standing before the judge here in Linden, and uh, they present the case, which is, you know what? It's a shut and close case on me. And he's ready to bring the gavel down and say guilty and send me off to death row. And the back door of the courtroom opens, and a guy comes running through, and he comes up the front, and he stops the judge. says, stop, stop, please, please. Okay, you're right. Randy's guilty, and what he deserves is the death penalty because that's what the law requires. But the law just requires death for this. Send me in Randy's place. And so the judge looks at me and says, well, it's your call. Well, I'm no dummy. This guy's willing to do that, and I get off? So he sends him off to death row. And the judges look at me and say, okay, you're free to go. Well, I've got a pretty important question right now, and here's my question I ask the judge. Who was that guy, and why did he do it? And the judge looks at me and says, well, it's simple. He was my son, and I told him to do that. That's what Jesus did for you. That's what Jesus did for me. That's atonement. He, he covered that up by, by being our substitute and taking on for us what we deserved. Forgiveness is possible because God acts to take away the sin that made us guilty. Thus, God releases us from guilt and from the punishment. Jesus died as the Lamb of God as our substitute And it's on the basis of his shed blood that God offers full and free forgiveness to all who accept him by faith. Second word, propitiation. I like this word because it's just kind of fun to say. Propitiation. When was the last, has anybody ever used that word in a conversation? Propitiation. Yeah, okay. Um, What's that mean? It means to satisfy the demands. So when we read in 1 John 2, 1, that if anyone does sin, okay, that would be, the anyone would be who? Like, like you and me, right? Okay, that's us. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate, the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. What that means is that the penalty was satisfied. The wrath of God was satisfied when he could put his wrath on Jesus, So this need for God, because he's holy, to put his wrath on sin, it was satisfied when he did that and put his wrath and poured that out on Jesus and our behalf. Third, justification. That means to be declared innocent. Romans 3.24 says we're justified by his grace as a gift. That means we're found innocent. We're vindicated. Once and for all, Romans 6 says. Fourth word, redemption. This is all part of the work of Christ on our behalf of what he did on the cross so that God could forgive us. This had to happen for God to be able to forgive each one of us. Redemption, that's setting the captives free. Okay, there's enough of you that I can use this illustration in the room. You guys, you're not going to get this one, okay? You're not going to get it. It's okay. Do you remember green stamps? Yeah. You don't even know what those are, do you? Green stamps. 
Well, when you'd buy groceries and stuff, you'd get these green stamps for every dollar or so much. You'd get so much green stamp. Then you'd have this card, and you'd, you'd paste them all, and you'd lick them and paste them on the card, and then you'd be able to take your whole card of green stamps in and get two loaves of bread free. You would redeem your green stamps to get something. They called it redeeming your green stamps, didn't they? Redemption. See, that's the idea behind redemption. Something is given in order to get something. And Jesus gave his life to redeem us to set the captives free. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession. So redemption now includes this idea of the payment of a price in a substitutionary sense for the freedom to free something. And in the case of the green stamps, they were freeing these two loaves of bread to give me in exchange for the green stamps. Last word, reconciliation. This is mending what was broken. Listen to Romans 5, 6 through 11. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So this work of God in bringing back sinful man into fellowship with himself through the removal of that which caused the alienation, which was our sin. You see why forgiveness is such a big deal? And God's forgiveness is such a big deal? Now, what's interesting is, see, there's this connection. That, by the way, is all introduction. There's a connection between God's forgiveness and us forgiving others. Listen to Mark eleven twenty five. Forgive so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Luke 6, 37 says this, forgive and you will be forgiven. I, that doesn't fit into my box very nicely. How does that work? It sounds conditional. Okay, listen to this in Matthew 6. This is a familiar one. Okay, the Lord's Prayer. And forgive us our debts as... We have forgiven our debtors. See the connection there? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's where we stop when we read the Lord's Prayer. We don't go to verse 14. We end right there. Listen to verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Do you think God takes forgiveness seriously? How do we explain this? Because it sounds so conditional. See, I don't think it's a condition. I think it's a demonstration. I think it's a demonstration. See, 
that forgiveness, us forgiving others is so directly connected to God's forgiving us because when we understand God's forgiveness, guess what's going to happen? We're going to forgive others. Those two happen. They will happen. So see, if I refuse to forgive somebody, what that really says is I don't understand God's forgiveness. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 18. And I'm going to skip a whole bunch of slides back there from time to time, so I'll, I'll help you get caught up with me, okay? Matthew chapter 18. What's happening in Matthew chapter 18? Well, at the beginning, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. I mean, talk about clueless. These guys, they just didn't get it at all. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. So Jesus brings this little child and says, okay, look at, look at this little child. Whoever humbles himself like this little child, he's the greatest in my kingdom. It's not the powerful, the prestigious. It's the least, the last, and the lost. See, it's an upside-down kingdom. It's totally upside-down. It's totally upside-down to how the world thinks. In the world, it's the powerful and the prestigious and and those that have all the possessions. They're the powerful ones. They're the greatest. In God's kingdom, it's the least, the last, and the lost. So then he goes on. He says, look at you. So so you guys got to get this, and you got to deal seriously with your sin. So so seriously that, you know, if your eye's going to offend you, pluck it out. Because it's better to go into eternity with one eye than to go to hell with both eyes. So you got to take seriously dealing with this sin thing. So seriously, it's like the the shepherd who has 100 sheep and one of them strays off in sin. The shepherd leaves the 99 behind and he goes and chases that one. And so you, when somebody sins against you in my kingdom, what you need to do is be like that shepherd and go chase them and pursue them and meet with them. And if they listen to you, you've won your brother. If not, take another friend with you and chase them down and pursue them. If they don't listen to the two of you, get the whole church chasing the guy down. Because that's the heart of the father toward that one lost sheep. He sent his son in our place to die a grueling death for you, that one lost sheep. And see, if he does that, you, you won your brother. So Peter's still listening to all this. Oh, okay, okay, I think I got this, okay. So Peter asks a very important question in verse 21. Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Okay, stop right there. Peter was, um, was schooled enough in rabbinic law that he knew rabbinic law required that you only forgave somebody three times for the same offense. It's kind of like the three strikes and out rule. So this was really not a question. This was a rhetorical statement. Basically, Peter's saying this, okay, I think I got this. If I do this, then he does this. Okay, fine, we're, we're restored. But if he does, 
How many times do I get? You certainly couldn't expect me to forgive double plus one of what the rabbinic law requires. That would be ludicrous. And what's Jesus' response? Verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some of your translations probably say 70 times seven. Okay, in our, our discipling and counseling ministry, we actually had a guy walk in one time in a pile of paper, and, and he was at Howie and Denny's house. He walks in with his pile of paper. He throws it down on the coffee table and says, there it is. There's the list of the 490 things I've forgiven my wife for. I don't have to forgive her one more thing. I think he kind of missed Jesus' point. What's the point? How, how often do you forgive? But what if I forgive them and the next week they do it again? You forgive them again. But Okay, but I forgive them and then they, the next day they do it again. What do I do? You forgive them again. So Jesus now is going to really try to drive this point home. So he shares a story. Therefore, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Okay, in the story, we've got two people here. Who are they? One is who? The king. And the other is his servants. Okay? That's the stage that's set there. Got a king and his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him and owed him 10,000 talents. Now, I've spent a lot of time researching, trying to figure out how many 10,000 talents are. And um, here's what we know. Um, 10,000 was like the biggest number they could comprehend. And a talent was one of the biggest units of measurement that they had. So it's like telling me our national debt is $23 trillion. Because I have no idea how to get, wrap my arms and my head around $23 trillion. I, I, it, it's incomprehensible to me. Well, we know it, it could have been, if they were silver talents, it could have been as much as $20 million in our current money. I got a little program that takes, takes currency and translates it from um, old time and it adds inflation and everything else. So it comes up to about $20 million if it was silver talents. If it was gold talents, it could have been as much as $30 million. Okay, you get the idea here? This guy owes buku bucks. He owes more money than he's going to ever be able to, to, to pay back. He owes a lot. So verse 25, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, the king was not really acting cruel here. This was kind of standard operating procedure in that culture. If you didn't pay your bills, that's what happened. Like today, if you don't pay your mortgage, what's going to happen? Eventually, you're going to get kicked out of the house, and the bank's going to change the locks on your door, right? That's standard operating procedure. This was standard operating procedure in that culture. So the king wasn't being exceptionally you know, hard on the guy. He was just doing what they do. So, verse 26, the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Okay, what did the servant actually ask the king for here? Look at it. What did he ask for? Did he ask to be forgiven? No. He asked for more time. Just give me some more time, and I'll pay you back. He didn't say, just forget my debt. I'm going to pay you back. I just need, give me more time, okay? 
Verse 27. If you're a Bible underliner, this is a verse you need to underline. And out of pity for him or compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. That's a great definition right there of forgiveness. He released him and forgave the debt. You know what that means when he forgave him? Paid in full. No balance, no interest. Stamped, paid in full. That's powerful. Now, if I owed $30 million, and I said, you know what, I need a few more, I need some time to be able to pay back, and I'll pay it back, and instead the whole debt's forgiven, you know what I'm going to do? I'm throwing a party. I'm throwing a party. We're going to have all my friends over. We're going to celebrate, because this is the most amazing thing that could ever happen in your life. (laughs) This debt that I, I really... I told him I just needed more time to pay him back. I would never have been able to pay him back, and he forgave me. Whoa, let's party. So what's he do? Verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, about 3,200 bucks. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Does that sound remotely familiar? Almost word for word. Have patience with me. Give me some more time and I'll pay you back. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servant saw what had taken place, there was great distress And they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. How should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. Okay, what's the point here? In this story, who's the king represent? God. Who's the wicked servant represent? You and me, right? Who's the fellow servant represent? The person who sinned against you. See what Jesus is saying? You owed a debt to God of $30 million, and he forgave you but you won't forgive your fellow brother who owes you 3200 bucks. Maybe you didn't really understand what it meant to be given, forgiven for the $30 million. Every parable has a point, and one point that the parable is trying to drive home. And here's the point. The forgiven must forgive. You guys, as a believer, forgiveness is not an option. And why does God say he won't forgive us unless we forgive others? Because our forgiving others is the demonstration that shows we really understand what it meant to be forgiven by God. We really understood the depth of our sin and our need of grace. And because of that, this guy only needs that much grace. God showed me this much grace. I can show them that much grace. 
Now, the things that you've experienced in life may seem more like more than $3,200. Some of you in this room have been sinned against in very, very awful ways. Some of you have been sinned against in very evil ways. But it's not the $30 million that you've been forgiven. And look at, so what happened? He's turned over the jailer and he's trapped now. He's in prison until he can pay it back. I don't know how that works, but anyway, that's what happened. And when we fail to forgive, I think what we experience is the jail of our own bitterness and a hard heart and the lack of relationships and the, and the failed relationships and the hindered relationships, the lack of peace, all of those things that are a result of the lack of forgiveness in our lives. We're tormented by the bitterness that will eat you alive. Now, how serious is God with this? Look at verse 35. This is one of the scariest verses in the New Testament to me. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Guys, forgiveness is not an option for you as a believer. And forgiveness is the path to reconcile relationships and freedom from that bitterness. You don't have to live with bitterness. It's a choice you make. God wants to free you from that. And he's provided everything necessary for that to happen. I want to close with Colossians 3, 12 through 14. And I don't know if I put that, I don't know if I gave you that verse or not. There it is, okay. So then as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, okay, remember we stopped right there yesterday, didn't we? Why did we stop there? That's right. There's three descriptions of us here, right? We're chosen, holy or set apart, and dearly loved. The God of the universe chose you out of all of the millions of people in the world. He chose you and he set you apart to put himself on display. And and he loves you. You're beloved by the creator God of the universe. You know what that means? I don't need anything from anybody else. I don't need a wife that loves me. It's sure nice when she does. I don't need a wife that respects me. It's sure great when she does. I don't need any of that because I have all that I need through a true relationship with Jesus, Peter tells us. So when I understand that I'm chosen, I'm set apart, and I'm dearly loved, that puts me in a position to unconditionally love other people and forgive them with no expectation of response or return. Boy, that's hard. But when I understand that, look what I need to do. Put on heart of kindness and humility and meekness and patience. I'm bearing with one another. Any complaint I have against somebody, I'm forgiving others. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. How has he forgiven us? For everything, completely, repeatedly, for the same thing over and over and over. 
And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You see, guys, here's the deal. Why does God want us to forgive? And why is it a demonstration of the gospel? Because the gospel is a demonstration of God's love for us. And therefore, we need to demonstrate that same love to others. And I'm convinced one of the greatest ways we as the church today violate love and violate the great commandment of loving others as much as we love ourselves, we violate that through unforgiveness and bitterness and the destruction that that brings in our relationships. How we relate reflects what we understand about God and what we understand about the gospel. And that's one of the greatest ways it gets lived out. So I don't know who is in your life that has caused you pain or is causing you pain right now. And I don't know how much pain you're experiencing, and I may never experience some of the things you are, but I know this. The forgiven must forgive. And not only is there freedom in forgiveness, it's how we live out the demonstration of the gospel and how we love people the way God's called us to love. Have you experienced God's love in your life? You know what he wants you to do? He wants you to show what that love looks like to others. You know what that means? There's probably somebody you need to forgive. Now, we spent a lot of time yesterday talking about how you do that and specifically how you do that. If you need help with that, we want to help you. As a matter of fact, I'd like to have all of the pastors and elders. Could you stand? Pastors and elders, could you stand? Okay. Um, can, their wives, could your pastor and elders' wives stand? Your wives stand? Okay, other staff people? Where's their staff people? All right, you got two, four, six, seven people right here. You know what I know about these seven people? Because I've met them all. I've had dinner with them all. You know what I know? Number one, they love Jesus. You know what else I know? They love you. That's why they do what they do. Number one, because they love Jesus. Number two, because they love you. And you know what they want? They want to see this body of believers living with the right understanding of the character of God and living out the reality of the gospel in your love for one another. And if you're not learning how to forgive and if you're not dealing with bitterness, that love is not going to be evidence. They want to help you. They are a gift from God to you. Use the gift that God's given you. Thanks, you can be seated. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you've yanked us out of the kingdom of darkness and that you've brought us into the kingdom of your son. Thank you that your grace is greater than our sin. Thank you that you love us so much. You want us to experience a relationship with you, and you want that love to pour out into all of our relationships with one another. God, help us to understand the depth of your love and the riches of your grace. Help us understand what an amazing thing it is that you sent your son to run in the back through the back door of the courtroom and die in our place. And thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to do that for us out of your love for us. May that love spill out of our lives into all of our relationships, and may you get great glory because of it. And to that end, we pray. Amen.